Hey, Stephen, welcome to the Business of Fun. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Great. So I wanted to have you on because I know that you and True Tickets have started the, you know, are one of those many organizations that's involved with tickets and Bitcoin and the, you know, the blockchain. And for lack of a better term, one of the struggles I have is really figuring out what is real and what is not about Bitcoin and blockchain, especially when it comes to tickets. Um, and I know from talking to a lot of people who listen to this, we all have the same sort of concern that this is the flavor of the day. This is sort of, um, you know, the shiny bauble that everybody's going to try to sell uh, currently. But having talked to you a couple of times, I think you have an interesting take on it. Can you share a little bit about why in your hands blockchain and Bitcoin and tickets in this way is not BS, that it is like something that really can add value to consumers and to rights holders? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the first thing I got to correct is, you know, we're certainly trying to build a ticketing platform that's based off blockchain, but nowhere in our platform is it based off cryptocurrency. So if you look at Bitcoin, Bitcoin is a great example of blockchain technology, but blockchain is not necessarily Bitcoin. So blockchain is essentially just a narrow uh, definition of a distributed ledger technology. So the True Tickets platform is really built on uh, distributed ledger slash blockchain technology that allows us to track the provenance of tickets from the point when they're issued in the primary market throughout all the life cycle in each transaction, all the way until consumption at the door. So we're trying to capitalize on what's currently broken in a ticketing market, not necessarily cap, um, capitalize on the hype that's surrounding Bitcoin, Ethereum, or any of the cryptocurrencies. And and that's uh, interesting that you focus on what's broken. And I know that, you know, you've come to me and we've talked about what's broken and some of the ideas. And I know you've talked to a lot of people. You know, so what are the two or three things that, as far as things that are broken are you trying to work on focusing on and fixing? I think that question depends on what your perspective is. So we break the perspective down into artists, venues, and users. So from the artist standpoint, artists are currently missing out in the secondary marketplace. As an example... 2016, the Hamilton play had about 32 shows, and they profited about $2.7 million. Studies show that scalping, on average, uh, those tickets, Hamilton lost about $7 million in lost revenue. So from an artist standpoint, they know they can sell tickets in the primary market, and they're very cost-conscious of what that face value is so they don't alienate those fans. Brokers don't really care. They just want to make money, or really just anybody who's trying to sell that ticket. So we can create a platform so that we can remunerate a portion of the proceeds whenever scalpers or users resell that ticket two, three, four times later after the primary market. The second perspective is looking at the venue. Venues know who bought tickets initially, but there's really this black hole on who's actually coming to the venue. They don't know if the customer is the same one who bought the ticket or if that initial customer decided to resell it two or three times so now they're trying to market an event to an audience that doesn't match reality. And we spoke with the venue actually in Washington, D.C. about this. And one of the techniques they use is they go to Craigslist and they go to StubHub and they look and see what the price of that secondary ticket is being sold for. And then they use that price to determine what's the market and what's the flavor of customer walking through our door. Is that ticket being sold for a premium? Or is that ticket being sold essentially at a loss and we need to redesign our thinking 
or even restock our bar based on who's buying a ticket. And then the last perspective is the users. Users are frustrated when they go to buy a ticket and that ticket's either sold out or they're confused whether or not that ticket is being bought or sold in the primary market or the secondary market. And regardless of which market they buy it in, they're paying an exorbitant amount of money in fees that they don't understand. And a lot of those fees go to basically the fragmented mar market that exists in ticketing. And it has to go to ensuring that those tickets they bought in the secondary market are legitimate. Yeah, no, and, and I appreciate this, and, and I made um, several notes here. And I want to phrase this the right way because – and I'm, I guess I'll start with the user because I'm often um, pointed at as somebody who focuses way too much on the customer, which I'm not necessarily sure if you can actually do that, but I guess I accept that as a badge of honor. And you say that users are frustrated and confused, and then they're also maybe even outraged about some of the fees that they're paying because they don't know what, what all this means. How much of this frustration and confusion don't, do you think is – accidental and how much of it is really just a part of the system that you know is natural and created as a way to keep consumers in the dark there's certainly a level of overt opaqueness in the industry um there is certainly a level where artists recognize that if they sell a ticket for a thousand dollars they're going to alienate alienate a lot of their fans so they sell that ticket for a hundred dollars they may hold some of those tickets and sell them themselves in the secondary market to try and recoup some of that. We know that exists. We know that uh, in the 1990s, as certain ticketing companies begin to increase their ticketing fees, venues begin to recognize that they can make more money off ticketing fees. So you had this basically this explosion of facility fees and building fees and access fees and printing fees and all these different fees that benefited everybody but the user. And at the end of the day, the user and the fan just became dis basically discouraged by the entire experience. And we feel like as a fan, when you buy a ticket, your first approach to that venue or artist shouldn't be a negative one. It should be a positive one. So by taking technology and breaking down the barriers surrounding the status quo, and that status quo in reality was built back in the 1970s and 1980s, the technology that runs tickets. If we can redesign the way we build the backend systems and make it much more efficient and much more automated, on the backbone of blockchain, then we can reduce some of that friction and we can thereby lower the transaction fees and it becomes a benefit to the consumer. The other point I'll raise with that is if we can, uh, if we can tra trace the ticket provenance from uh, basically issuance to consumption and everywhere in between, we can introduce an alternative rev revenue model. So instead of having Ticket fees be the source of revenue for venues and artists, kind of. Then we can introduce something that we call remuneration. So if somebody buys a face value ticket for $100 and they decide to sell it for $1,000, well, who's making the $900 profit? It's not the artist. It's not the venue. It's the scalper. But what if we charge a 10% on top of that, uh, on top of that secondary sale and that 10% went back to the artist? Maybe another 10% went, went to the venue. Those are rule sets that we're exploring that currently we can't capture right now because the market is so fragmented. And, and what you just said, too, about this model where, let's say, you're, you, know, you, you don't limit resale, right? Because, and I know that we're both aware of the impact that if I charge you $1,000 for the ticket and I'm the venue, the primary side, I'm a jerk, right? But if I'm a, sec I'm a, I'm a broker on the secondary side and I charge you 1000 bucks, 
the way you feel about it is much different because then you feel like you've like pulled like a miracle out of your head and it's all perception. It's the same ticket, the same price, likely many of the same people profiting off of it. Um, you know, so like this, but creating this in system where everybody benefits, I think is, is valuable. Um, you know, so that, you know, that's one thing that's appealing to me. Uh, but the second question that all of this raises too, though, is when you're talking to a venue and they talk about a black hole and who's in the seat and, you know, your solution is working to provide an answer to that. And then you're working on the pricing thing, you know, how all of this data, right? How do you make sure it's useful and actionable? Because when I, when you tell me you talk to a venue in DC and they make their pricing decisions or their um, strategy decisions based off what they see on StubHub, you and I probably are very, at least I'm very well aware that the prices that are listed on StubHub or Craigslist or Tickets Now or uh, Ticketmaster Resale or wherever you will go and find them are most of the time there's a lot of BS there. The real sales price is not that. So how do you make sure that this data is actually actionable, useful, and relevant? That's a great question. Um, before I answer that question, you made a point I wanted to address when you talked about that $1,000 ticket and you know the, the fan feeling that they got this great deal because they spent $1,000 and they get to go see their favorite, their favorite artist or their favorite band. They feel that way, but in the back of their mind, they're also fearful that I spend $1,000 on a fraudulent ticket. And that's that's may not be a main issue for secondary for the secondary market for companies like StubHub and you know some Vivid Seats and some of the companies that, that participate in that market. They'll say that that's not even in their top five of concerns. However, if you're a fan, you spend a thousand dollars. That's certainly your number one concern is whether or not that ticket is valid. So there's a disconnect between what the secondary market is concerned about as a corporation and what the fan is concerned about when they buy that ticket. Yeah. Now, and actually before you go on too, that brings up a good point because it's, you know, I think we've had this conversation offline about how important it is. And it reminds me of the saying about unemployment, right? Like unemployment's 5%, but if you're unemployed, then it's a hundred percent. And so it doesn't matter at all. So I use it. I use it. I don't use the, the unemployment example, but I use the example that, you know, for, for StubHub, it's less than 1% of all the tickets are actually fraudulent. But if you bought a fraudulent ticket, that's 100% of, of your purchase. But that's also and, a lot of tickets, too. I mean, that's hundreds of, of thousands of tickets. And, 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 and StubHub, to their credit, they will refund you that ticket if it's fraudulent. But they're not going to refund you the experience. So, for instance, one of our co-founders, Dave Piskovich, took his family to go see Hamilton. You know, he flew from San Diego to New York. Bought Hamilton tickets. Thankfully, his tickets were legitimate, and he was able to see the show. Had he walked up to the venue and those tickets were fraudulent, he would get a refund, but they're not going to refund him the cost of airfare, the cost of hotel, or the experience to come back. Whereas one of our investors, his wife took him to go see Hamilton. They go to the gate or the front door, and one ticket is good and the other ticket's bad. So, you know, he had that experience, and that really hit home there are fraudulent tickets out there. They may not be as uh, prevalent and in a quantity that makes it a concern to the major companies, but they are a concern to somebody for buying a thousand dollar ticket. Yeah. You know? um, and then going back to your point where you're talking about how do you use actionable data uh, so that you just don't have really data overflow and you're being consumed by it. Everything that we look at has to be actionable. What blockchain allows it allows you to know the identity of the user who's buying that ticket initially, 
and it allows you to know the identity of the users who are buying the tickets between the initial purchase and the consumption of that. Um, and that information is very, very important. Are we selling it to a man in his 40s and then that man is selling it to a woman in her 20s and then she's selling it to uh, an 18 year old? All of those different people that are buying and purchasing those tickets have different marketing profiles. Uh, and if we can determine what that marketing profile is and we can better target them for whether it's advertisements, whether it's coupons or discounts, or we can actually help elevate them to our priorities so that when they buy their next ticket, they're not having to wait in so-called the digital line until uh, they're available to purchase it. And, and that makes a question here because I know that one of the things that, you know, that we brought up is the secondary market here. But if you own, have the chain of ownership, right, and let's say, let's say I use an example, I buy the ticket, right? I can't go, I sell the ticket to my neighbor who then can't go and re, has to resell the ticket. And then we end up, the end user is uh, my kid, you know, a teenager, right? That's very important to know because then they can also, you, you know, you can use artificial intelligence or like some of the other tools to find out, go, oh, Dave Wakeman buys tickets this often, this kind of ticket, this is what he's looking for, blah, blah, blah. Then you can go, oh, my neighbor, uh, Josh, Josh buys this kind of ticket, this kind of ticket. And then it goes on and on, which was a long-winded way of saying the way it sounds, it also could make the relationship between the primary and the secondary more valuable, even outside of the idea of capturing some of the revenue, because you understand better than ever what the secondary market is doing with your tickets, right? Because with the consolidation deals, a lot of times they're just, they, they take in the tickets and they list some of them at artificial, not artificially low, but lower prices. And then they become really, those get bought up by other brokers who go on and market them and remarket them over and over again. So is that something you guys have been thinking about as far as, you know, the value of understanding what the secondary chain is as, as well as not just from the primary side? Absolutely. And that's a consequence of, of, of the fragmentation inside the marketplace. You have, you know, one or two companies that are very well entrenched and have control of the primary market. But once it gets into the secondary market, that ticket can go just about anywhere. Um, so what we want to build at True Tickets is a platform. Eventually, where a ticket can go from one ticketing company to another ticketing company, and we can track the the provenance of that life cycle from user to user as well, along with which company is is being uh, transacted on. So we can provide some valuable analytics, not only to that ticketing company, but also to the event host and the performer. Because again, it goes back to they know who bought the ticket because they have a contract with the primary ticketing provider and they have basic analytics associated with that. They don't know the, the true fan who walked through the door. So we're ultimately trying to determine who that true fan is. And that true fan, maybe for a country music show, buys a ticket 200 miles away from the venue drives to that venue and always sees uh, performers that are country music. But if they buy something for pop, then they're more willing to sell that ticket in the secondary market. So now we have a profile established for that user that they always attend shows for country music, but they always sell or they have a propensity to sell shows for, for pop music. And it's a different profile when it comes to marketing and it's a different profile when it comes to how do we associate that with the fan base. And I'm going to ask this question, and I, you may have answered it before, and I may have just been um, missed it. But when you, because you, you're talking about 
this thing in the country music example, knowing that people will travel a lot further from for country music than they might for pop. I know that 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 data is real, and that like those are real examples, right? Like, right. I mean, this is like this is the truth, right? This is data that we know exists. But how do you make sure that like your partners on the venue side or on the content, um, you know, the content rights holder side actually use this data? Because I know even from friends I have on the secondary side that they provide a lot of this data now and it never gets used. And, you know, I guess maybe one of the things I'm interested in just is like how to make some of these things that are just there actually get used because, you know, this is, I mean, this, you, you used an example that we both know that like you, we didn't talk about that we, I know is true. That is extremely valuable because you know that, Hey, I can do different things if I know people are going to travel to see me, right? It's Kenny Chesney. You got Pearl Jam. You have a lot of these bands. They can do whatever they want because they know people try two, three, four, a thousand miles to see them. But right. a lot of venues don't use this stuff. And so how can we create an environment where they will? I think in order to use the data, you have to trust the data. Okay. And in the current status quo, there might be a mistrust of the data that's coming in. So you either have mistrust or you have too much data that's not actionable. So, again, going back to the example, I know somebody bought a ticket, but I don't know if that person who literally lives 200 miles away, if they decided at the last minute to give it to their daughter to come to the show. Even though they're a true fan and always come to country music festivals, I just don't know. I'm assuming. So that data has you know, a lower level of trust versus if we have the provenance of that ticket established on a true tickets platform that, no kidding, we can tell that ticket was activated and whether or not that true fan actually showed up to the show. Now we can go back to the venue and say, this is absolute truth data. This is your one source of truth. And that's something that blockchain does really well. It basically offers a trust anchor, so that there isn't an alternative source of truth. This is it. Uh, so it becomes, what valuable data can we give to the venues and ensure that they can trust the data that we give to them? And let me ask you this question, too, because one of the things with data, there's always a concern about cost involved or the need for more staff, which I guess eventually becomes cost, right? Because of the, the levels of data and the, the fact that you have, I think you call it a trust anchor just now for the data, does that make it more expensive or cheaper to use your data? And I think it's cheaper, but I, but I could be wrong. We think it's cheaper too. Um, you know, we're not having to do these, we're not having to mine the data and clean the data. Um, it's already there. So again, it all goes back to having trust and provenance in the life cycle of the ticket. And that's why blockchain works so well for this market because you have a digital asset that's basically representing something physical access to an event and that digital asset is being moved from person to person to person. How do we make sure that digital asset is not duplicated or copied, replicated or um, given as, as a fraudulent source of data? Blockchain prevents those types of scenarios so that we go forward with data that it's the data we expect. It's the data that is, again, the ground truth and it becomes much cheaper in the sense that I don't have to go back look through the data and review it to ensure that, no kidding, Dave Wakeman was actually the person who attended. So here's a great example. We're talking with an event organizer in the Northeast, and this event basically puts on a show once a year. It's a very high-profile show, and in this event, they bring in A-list stars. They subsidize the event by charging uh, you know, VIP tickets, 
and fundraising. Well, the event is really designed for one specific market, and that specific market gets the benefit. So they release a certain amount of tickets to folks living inside that market, and then anybody who lives outside that market has a lesser chance of attending the venue. So when you buy a ticket, you actually have to provide your phone number, your mailing address, and proof of residency, and the event organizers take that information and very manually go back and check and see, hey, does Dave Wakeman live at 123 Main Street? Does he live in the city? Does he pay the bills here? Is he a true resident? If he is, he gets a ticket. We can automate that process almost instantly by using blockchain and big data. So let me ask you this then, because, I mean, this is, I mean, again, I'm not like a, a Luddite here who's afraid of technology or, you know, skeptical of a lot of this stuff. But what, one concern I do have is scalability, right? And right, so in theory, all of this stuff sounds great, right? But how much scale can you deliver on or how much scale have you been able to deliver on so far? So when we looked at this project about a year ago and we were looking at uh, – we knew that blockchain was a solution for this industry. That was kind of a given. Once we did the analysis of the problems associated with thinking industry, the primary and the secondary market, blockchain was, was really a great marriage of technology. Then we looked at the different types of technologies uh, that we could build with blockchain. And getting back into your very first question of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, that was a fundamental decision. Did we want to introduce cryptocurrency into the solution? And if we did, one of the... Uh, platforms we could have used was Ethereum. Quickly, we realized that we didn't want to be cryptocurrency. We wanted to be essentially a fiat currency company. We wanted to be an entertainment and ticketing company that just happens to use blockchain the way any other ticketing company uses the internet. Uh, and we looked at IBM Hyperledger Fabric solution created basically with the Linux Foundation. And that solution allows us to scale to the point where we can issue tickets necessary with volume with the volume necessary for people to enjoy the experience. So we can issue tickets up to 4,000 transactions per second. Uh, that's something other blockchain platforms are incapable of doing right now. And so have you used it in action, I guess, is, is, is the question. So, you know, because everything so far, that's theory. Um, but what, what have you been able to do and actually take real, real world case studies and use Absolutely. So our, our first, so we've been testing the platform for the past couple of months, um, and that that the testing has been centered around uh, the developers and the founders inside the company. Our first external event is this Thursday on the twenty uh, first. That's a, a test event in Boston, where we have an invitation only, uh, very limited event where people are going to use the application. Uh, they're going to come in, scan the tickets. We'll resell some tickets to test out limited functionality. From that event through the end of September, we have a whole series of test events that are designed around a very specific user story. Another one scheduled for July is called Scalping for Charity. In that event, what we have planned is volunteers will agree to buy a certain amount of tickets and then pledge to resell those tickets at a profit. Uh, and all of this goes back to charity. So not only do we benefit the charitable foundation, but we also benefit true tickets and testing out the capacity to buy tickets, put tickets up for sale, transact those tickets, resell them and recoup money from each one of those uh, uh, transactions and then give the charity information that's useful for them. Uh, 
and we secure the tickets in the process. And on when you're doing this job, you know, this charity event, are you going to have the ability to, and I guess that's probably what you're doing the beta, this beta test on, is putting controls on the tickets and say, hey, like, look, I want you to resell it at 10% this one time, and then I want you to resell with whatever the next time. That's absolutely right. So uh, each ticket will have a control on there, so a rule set. So perhaps uh, that ticket can't be sold for more than two times of face value. Another ticket may not be able to get sold for more than three or four times of face value. Each one of those transactions, a portion of the ticket price will be remunerated back to the charity event. Now, obviously, at the end, we'll remunerate all the proceeds back to the charity event. We're trying to test out very specific functionalities. Uh, another user story that we're testing later in the summer, we'll buy tickets to an event and we'll try and replicate the behavior that a scalper may use. So perhaps that scalper is going to go out there and buy a burner phone. And then on that burner phone, download the application, put in some uh, fictitious information about who they are, and then buy tickets off our mobile application and sell those to people at the event. So with identifying who those, uh, you know, actors are, they really are actors, and then see if we can flag them uh, and then test out that capability. Yeah, and that, that would be really interesting case study to see because I know, I mean, God, I don't want to give away trade secrets here, but, you know, I'm a, I get on all, all the boards and all the Facebook groups and everything, and I know that there's no limit to um, the creativity of the secondary market to find ways around the system. So, you know, Absolutely. this is great. I mean, this is like a really great example. I'm going to be really curious about this. <laughs> so, so I'll tell you, we, one of our very first conversations we had with investors back in September, we were pitching the idea and the investor said, I like the idea, but what if this were the Super Bowl? I would just go out there and buy a new iPhone. I knew iPhones, what, $700 and I'm going to resell a ticket for $10,000. Um, so that's a cost I'm willing to incur. And our response to that was, look, we can't close down the system 100%. There will always be edge cases, and we have to accept those edge cases. Because if we try and lock the system down 100%, focused on maybe the 1% that are getting around it, then we're going to alienate the 99 other percent. And we don't want to do that. Right. So everything is designed to be uh, very, uh, very deliberate, and we want to do it very smartly. Uh, and we want to do it behind the scenes so it's not in your face. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, that, that really I mean, it does make sense. And I think probably you and I probably, I know we come from slightly different angles, but that share a lot in common. I also feel that, like, if there's 1% or 2% of the inventory that's on the secondary market, that's not necessarily always a bad thing because, again, you're selling an experience. And part of that experience is that if a ticket's tough to get or impossible to get, that adds to the mystique and the power of the event. You know, so I think when people come at this and they go, well, it's going to eliminate everything, um, that's wrong, right? That's what you've told us. And then the, the second thing is like, also, do you really want that to occur? No, but you do want it to be an environment where people are safe and secure in making these purchases and going to these events. You could, you could, you could lock the system up completely. I could say that in order to buy a ticket, you have to give me your thumbprint. And then in order to get access to the venue, you need to scan your thumb to get, to get in. But I don't think the general population, nor myself, I don't think we're comfortable with that. Yeah. Uh, so it has to be, you have to take technology and you have to measure it against what people are comfortable with using. You can't force technology on, on people. We think that our mobile application, we 
which is designed specifically for a mobile device. I think we're at the appropriate time in the life cycle of technology to introduce that. Uh, you know, people are comfortable using their phone to board airplanes. They're comfortable using their phone to uh, send their paperless ticket towards it. So we think people will be comfortable with having their entire experience on their phone. And that's what uh, the True Tickets platform is all about. Yeah, that's, no, that's great. And I think it's, um, you know, when you put it like that, that reminds me of, the, you know, the difference between an iPhone and an Android is like, sure, the Android you can do maybe the technology is cutting edge or bleeding edge in a lot of cases. And the iPhone might have technology that's a little bit more behind the Android. Yet the iPhone keeps up with where people are and where they're willing to use it. So right. that, and that's the same thing what you're talking about with true tickets here. Is that like, of course I can get way, way out in front of this and I can be so bleeding edge that nobody's going to want what I'm doing. But mm-hmm. the goal is to, you know, meet people where they're at. And I think right. that's really like the mark of any successful business is not being too far in front, just just far enough that people can catch up. Um, What's interesting? You know, talking about technology is interesting because you look at the life cycle of technology in the ticketing industry. You know, uh, Ticketmaster was founded back in the 1970s, 1976. In the 1980s, it perfected the method of selling tickets using a computer. And that was how they were able to leap ahead and become the number one provider of tickets. 1990s, you had the introduction of the Internet. I call it the Internet 1.0 that allowed tickets to be bought and sold over a long distance, you know, probably using uh, AOL or something. But in the 2000s, you had the introduction of what I call it, you know, Web 2.0, and that was where StubHub came about. And StubHub facilitated a very easy transfer of tickets from the primary to secondary market securely and safely. So about every 15 years, the industry is ripe for some type of disruption that changes the paradigm way we operate. So if you take that to where we are now, I firmly believe that blockchain is the next evolution of that. And what we're building at True Tickets is going to actually disrupt the industry. It's not going to be a matter of when or if, it's going to be a matter of who. And hopefully the True Tickets, we're the who that can capture that market or can prove that we're going to be successful at it. Yeah. And, and when you put it in terms of errors like this, like I've, I've been for like the last two years talking with with a number of people about tickets 3.0, which I think is, you know, you probably have not even heard me talk about this, but that's exactly right. It's time for whatever's next. And the same thing we see with uh, movies or music or any sort of entertainment, the, the entrenched players are always going to be reluctant to change because there's no fiscal incentive for them right. to change. Right. And, and, you know, so, I mean, I mean, it makes sense to me. And, you know, I really appreciate you, sharing all this with, you know, the people who listen to this podcast, because I know a lot of times we do make jokes about, you know, blockchain and, uh, you know, Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin rightly so. Uh, <laughs> I could be wrong, though, so this is like a timestamp on this. <laughs> um, but There's hype. There's hype associated with those because people are excited because it's a way that you can make money. Yes. So if you look back in 1996, 1997, people were hyping up the Internet, right? Mm-hmm. Um Think about the Super Bowl, you know, with Pets.com spending millions of dollars to, to advertise. Where are they today? So you'll have, I think you'll have the same set of companies that are hyping up their offerings, offering uh, ICOs or initial coin offerings, and there's not much really behind it. So you have to look at the business case. When it comes to blockchain, blockchain doesn't build a business. Just like the internet doesn't build a business. It facilitates a business process, but you have to have uh, all of the foundation already established. So that's really what True Tickets is trying to do, is we don't call ourselves a blockchain company. We call ourselves a ticketing company. 
We just happen to use blockchain to facilitate how we want to sell and transfer tickets. Yeah. No, I, it make, and it makes sense to me. I mean, who, nobody wants a PDF anyway. Um, yeah. where, where can people go and find you so they can yeah. learn more? Yeah, so come take a look at us, uh, www.truetickets.io, uh, and take a look at our website, and we'll be in the App Store later this summer. Right now we're uh, developing the product in a beta environment, so we're testing that out throughout the summer. That's by invitation only, but uh, we'll be in the App Store uh, actually this week. Uh, but again, it's by invitation only, and expect to see us uh, open wide in the market sometime this fall. Awesome. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Dave. appreciate it.